in a creative economy, you can find ways, even though you don't become ultimately the artist as your profession, mm-hmm. that training in the arts can be very valuable to you in being a lawyer, in being an investment banker, in being a realtor, in being a doctor. What would you think if I told you a story about how dance and technology are intertwined? That story is the story of Reggie Van Lee, a former technology consultant. Reggie is chairman of the board of the Washington Performing Arts Center and has worked with President Obama's Committee on the Arts and Humanities. We explore exactly how seemingly unrelated disciplines can come together. I'm originally from Houston, Texas, Mm -hmm. grew up there all my life. Actually, I was never a, a professional dancer per se, but I took dance classes. Mm-hmm. So I had an interest in dance from an early age. Um, when I graduated from high school, went to college in Massachusetts, got two degrees in engineering, then back to Houston, worked for two years as an engineer at Exxon, uh, and then went back to uh, Boston, to Harvard, to business school, got an MBA, and eventually moved to New York City and became a consultant with a management consultant firm called Booz Allen Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And when I arrived in New York in 1984, Something was missing in my life, and that desire I had for participating in the arts and cultural things was there. A friend of mine introduced me to the Dance Theater of Harlem, and I was one of these young professional volunteers, no money but some time and energy to help them do marketing and pass out flyers and encourage people to come to performances. And that evolved into a real interest in supporting not-for-profits. So I uh, chaired the board of Dance Theater of Harlem at one point. I've chaired the board of the Ronald K. Brown Evidence Dance Company. I've been vice chair of the board of the Washington Ballet. So all of this dance interest that I had from just studying it as a kid translated into, well, how can I be helpful to the art form? Uh, And I think I've been a much better dance patron than I would have been a dancer. Can you give me a little bit about the specific style of dance that you trained in? Uh, My dance training was almost laughable to most people, I think. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, eclectic at okay. best. So uh, there are many forms that, that uh, it took. And we even did things like, um, you know, learning to fall and roll. And uh, some kids in the class took skydiving as a part of it. I didn't do that. I, didn't, I wasn't bold enough to do that. So um, it was uh, dance training light, I would argue. Can you tell the story about how you got interested in engineering and went to MIT? Um, so I, I was interested in math and science as a kid. As I said, I did number sense and science fairs and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Um, and actually, when I was five years old, uh, I was an artist. I, I painted and drew a lot. And so I told my mother I wanted to be an artist. And she says, well, you know, artists starve, so you should probably be an architect. So from the age of five, I wanted to be an architect. And then as I moved into junior high school around seventh or eighth grade, my mother said, well, engineering seems to be the thing these days. You should really think about engineering. So I said, okay, I'll think about engineering. Well, uh, my parents would allow us to watch television, but we couldn't watch everything on television. There were certain programs that we were allowed to watch. Star Trek was one of those programs. And I became a real Trekkie, mm-hmm. loved Star Trek, thought Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock were gods and deities, and so I just worshiped them. I loved to watch the episodes, and it was fantastic, right? And they would spew technology things that, of course, I didn't understand, but it was impressive, and I really liked it. This one episode, this guy comes on the USS Enterprise, and he had gone to MIT. And the people that I worshipped were bowing and scraping to this guy from MIT. So I said to my mother, what is MIT? Who is this guy? She says, well, I don't really know, but I'll figure it out. Um, And in those days, we didn't have the internet, and you couldn't Google, so it wasn't an easy thing to find it out. 
But my mother found out and came back to me and said, MIT is the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's an engineering school in Boston, Massachusetts. And we had talked about engineering before. I said, well, I think that's where I want to go to, go to school. I mean, if an MIT person can get Captain Kirk and Mrs. Spock to bow to him, then that's what I want to be. And that started my interest in MIT and engineering. So when you were going into MIT, you were really having this vision of being just like Star Trek, kind of working. Were you, were you inspired to like work on spaceships and do all that kind of stuff too? Um, not necessarily. The The science fair projects that I did mm-hmm. in high school were always mathematical. Okay, things. so uh, You know, the, there was something called the Pharaoh's Dilemma, which is almost like a Rubik's Cube sort of game, and I figured out mathematically how to solve that Rubik's Cube thing. So it was math and science in that context that I thought I was most interested in. I was not a person who made things, so making robots and, and spacecrafts, that was not really me, but it really was the, the pure sort of math stuff. And that evolved into civil engineering, which is what I got my two degrees in. Uh, but I, I, I've always enjoyed just the notion of problem solving mm. and how to use technology to solve problems. Wow. And so I'm curious, you said you're a technology consultant working in New York, correct? Yes. And so it, can you go a little into that? Exactly what does a technology consultant do and how do you think that is related to uh, dance in some way? Well, actually, the, the consulting world is all mm-hmm. about problem solving. Mm-hmm. That's what consultants do. Mm-hmm. The firm that I was with, Booz Allen Hamilton, was formed in 1914. So it's one of the oldest consulting firms in the world and focus a lot on technology work. We do a lot of work with government as well as with corporate clients as well. But usually the work has some sort of technology aspect to it. So having that training in engineering was important to go into that firm. But what I discovered is in my dance training, the precision and the presence and the poise and the diligence that you had to develop in dancing was something I translated into my work as an engineer and eventually into my work as a management consultant as well. So those quasi-soft skills, but that sort of approach to life, approach to engaging with audiences, um, in making sure that there's humanity in the, wor- in the work that you do and the things that you do, all of those translated into my consultant field. And I think made me a much better consultant and a much more successful cons- consultant as well. Can you go a little bit into that experience? You talked about how you were working in the in the in the technology field, but then mm-hmm. you felt that 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 yearn to to go into dancing and to go into the arts and help volunteer. During that time period, were you consuming uh, content that was dancing and that there was art content that you were listening to and, and observing? Is that what got you kind of into what, the, the arts? Well, I think the volunteering with the Dance Fit of mm-hmm. Harlem had me in that space where I was seeing what dancers were doing. And I was also trying to help to ensure that the dance program could continue, mm-hmm. that it, the strate- strategically it was in the place it needed to be, that they were raising the money that they needed to, they were attracting the audiences that they needed. And that same sort of analysis is what I did as a consultant to help corporations. And so I said, let me see if I can merge these two together. And what I discovered was the experiences I had in dance and the experiences I had in working with not-for-profits really helped me in my business context. Uh, When I first started with the firm, I focused on the telecommunications industry. And so my clients were a bunch of telecommunications companies. And they're unionized organizations. So every three or four years when the union contract is up, there'll be a strike. And so we would come up with these solutions that would say, oh, fire these number of people or downsize this amount. And in a unionized environment, you can't do that. So the notion of how do you deal with the humanity of the people? How do you realize that they are individuals and they're human beings? The same sort of sensitivity that one picks up in dance I was able to apply in my business context. And it made me a much more productive consultant. I had recommendations that could be implemented because they had the human aspects in, as part of the solution as opposed to treating people like they were machines or, or nuts and bolts or something. 
And when you were younger, did, just what led you to being that engineer too? Since you had the dance training, yeah. why didn't you choose to pursue it back then? I always had that schizophrenia as a kid. I, I loved the dance, but I also loved math and science. So I was in the number sense club and I was in the science fair. I won the Houston's, uh, overall Houston science fair twice, both as a junior high school student and as a senior high school student. And I did speech and drama and debate and all that thing. So I always had a bunch of things that I was interested in. And so at some point, I knew I'd have to make a choice of which direction I want to go into. Um, and I, I came to the conclusion when I was in college that I could probably be a much better, as I said, dance patron than to be a dance artist. There were things of a business context that I could contribute mm -hmm. to the art form. The, the biggest project I started was there was an audience development mm -hmm. committee that was created for Dance Theater of Harlem because they wanted to really get more people into the theater, mm -hmm. you know, buying tickets and seeing performances. Right, right, right. And so uh, the analysis I did, which was a segmentation of the audience and, and, and suggesting that we could identify affinity groups like uh, for black fraternities and black sororities and other black organizations and bring them in and put them together. That was nothing different from the market segmentation work I did mm -hmm. as a consultant. Uh, and so I found that I could find a way to bring those skills into the dance field. <clears throat> and as I said before, also the, the sensitivity around dealing with people that I learned in working with dance, I could apply back into my work at Booz Allen. Could you give me an example of a time when you were working uh, with one of the dance organizations where you had to do that analysis for the dance companies? Where did you have to find that, that niche group to bring them in to make sure that you had that funding? Well, no, I, I did that analysis for mm -hmm. the dance companies. One of the good mm -hmm. things about the firm that I was with, they mm -hmm. had uh, a real um, arm of charity in the mm -hmm. work that we did. So there was a lot of pro bono work mm -hmm. that the firm would do. And so if you were to make a request to do a particular type of work and put a budget around it, the firm would fund uh, a team of consultants from the firm to go and work with uh, these different entities. So I have done not-for-profit pro bono work for Dance Theater Harlem, for the Student Museum at Harlem. For, I can go through a list of probably 20 or 30 organizations we've done that with. So um, if there was a need, if I was on a board or I had a friend who was on a board and they would say, oh, would Booz Allen do this pro bono work for us? We could apply for that and many times we'd do that work. Is there anything particular about those organizations that you have been working with that stood out to you and that encouraged you to work for those organizations specifically, those dance organizations? Well, it's interesting mm -hmm. because both in the work that we did with those firms and how I choose my philanthropy, there's mm -hmm. sort of three criteria that okay. I usually think about. The first is something around which I have passion. So if you look at the organizations I've been involved with, they've either been dance companies or performing arts companies more broadly, um, things having to do with kids and students and education, or things to do with diversity. So of all the myriad of causes one could attach to healthcare, social justice, et cetera, it, usually it's the arts, uh, diversity, and education for me. So first, it's an organization around which I have passion, and that passion causes me to have an insight and a sensitivity that I think could be helpful in the work I'm doing. The second criterion is I want to make sure our contribution is distinct and unique. If I'm just one more person doing one more thing, and if I wasn't there, it still would have happened. That's not as interesting to me. So I want to make sure that this would not have happened had I not been there. So it's a unique contribution I can make to it. And the third thing is I want to make sure the organization can digest the recommendations and implement it, that they have to be capable of being able to make it happen. For me to lay it out and then disappear and nothing happened is a waste of everyone's time. So they have to have the will 
and some set of resources or desire to push it forward. So those are the three criteria that both I would use and work that I would do with not-for-profits and even my own board service. And those criteria, those are without regard of lit, uh, location of those organizations? Exactly. Okay, exactly. that's wonderful. For the youth out there who kind of do have those two those two pages, two pages, two traits, the scientific side and there's the artistic side, mm-hmm. uh, what would you say in terms of their advice for them and how to choose and decipher which, which path to go down? It can be a difficult choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it's almost like flipping a coin because you're tied and you just don't know which way to go and you just say, well, I'll just pick one. Uh, but ideally, where you see the passion most, and for me, where I think I can make the best contribution, there are so many amazing dancers. And I was okay, but not the best necessarily. And so would I have been a unique, amazing dancer, or could I be a unique dance patron? And so in my case, I wanted to go in the direction where I thought I would really add the most value. Can you tell me the, uh, the importance of workforce development in youth in the arts? It's really interesting because um, the, for too many years, the purview of anything other than being on stage and performance was people that were not did not look like us. Um, it's not dissimilar to 50 years ago when we could perform on the stage of uh, theaters, but we couldn't sit out in the audience. We couldn't walk through the hotels to get to those stages. We had to walk through back doors. So a program that at least Arthur Mitchell did at Dance Theater of Harlem and others do it across the country as well, is to make sure young kids are trained in the full ecosystem of the arts program. That you can dance, you can do lighting, you can do sound, you can do other technical things, you can do makeup, you can do costumes, you can do choreography, um, you can do the back office accounting, uh, you can do box office. All of these are part of uh, the overall art sort of ecosystem. And historically, we've not been interested in or uh, made privy to participation in that. So I think training around workforce development in the arts broadly, the entire ecosystem, is really quite important. So people who you know decide, oh, this person is below me or whatever, I think they do it to their demise. And now I'm at an age with many of my friends retiring now, affluent black people who gave up on black folks a long time ago are lost now. Because who wants to be bought? I'm not a senior partner at Booz Allen anymore, so the white folks aren't all up in my face anymore. And the black people that I shunned for years don't want to be bothered with me. You know, many of these people go home, the spouses have created an entire life with you being out there making the money and not being here all the time. And then you come home and they're like, well, I know this is new for you, but you, I have a whole life I've designed. I don't have room for you coming in. You know, and these people go through divorces, people go through suicides. I mean, I had a colleague who last year committed suicide. It's a white colleague, but, you know, it happens with the black folks as well. So to me, when you see people do stuff like that, why in the world would I not want to engage with everybody? Do you believe that arts and dance can solve problems? Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest problems we have in this world is a lack of empathy and sympathy in the world. And I think that what artists impart to audiences and draw them into the human aspects of their lives and and touches them in ways that other things can't uh, is an amazing service to the world. And so I, I would like to see everyone have some interaction with the arts. I, I would love for every kid, every adult to see a dance performance, to see a theater performance, to go to a museum, et cetera. All those things that keep us in touch with our humanity and allow us to have empathy and not sympathy with others. I think that, that that approach to it is kind of why when I saw in your biography that you got to work with uh, President Obama. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Well, actually, um, I met Michelle Robinson before she was married to uh, the president uh, when she was at Harvard Law School and um, uh, had an interest in 
supporting the sort of things that people like her were doing as her husband was uh, applying for different positions and moving up in the um, social service sort of world, community development, community activism. Uh, when they would send around notes and say, would you contribute to this? And so I would contribute. Not having any idea, I was contributing to someone who would eventually be the president of the United States. Um, but also a number of friends that I have, a, a good friend of mine from undergrad uh, ended up being the social secretary for the Obamas. And um, another friend of mine was the deputy uh, um, chief of staff for the president. So a bunch of people that I knew through the years through school end up being in the Obama administration. And so that, you know, sort of welded my closeness to the Obamas. And so when they got into office, uh, I was approached many times to take a position mm -hmm. in the administration. Um, and I wasn't quite ready to leave the corporate world yet. I wasn't quite done with the work I wanted to do at Booz Allen, but I wanted to find a way to contribute. So they came to me and says, okay, what about this? Why don't you join the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities? That is an appointment. It's not a full-time job. You can do it as a committee member, et cetera. And so that's how I really started in working with that administration. And then eventually I was moved from the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities to uh, be a trustee at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, so, which I'm still a trustee now. And so what kind of work do you guys, what did you all do at, in the Arts and Humanities? What did you work on uh, particularly? When we started, there were three sort of subcommittees of the work we did. One was around um, arts education. One was around what we call the creative economy to talk about how, you know, a career starting in the arts could evolve into being a doctor, lawyer, et cetera. And one was about uh, cultural exchange, uh, international cultural exchange. And each of us got to uh, choose which committee we wanted to get on. So I got on the arts education committee because I like the arts and I like kids and, and education. I, and in my own life, I saw the importance of uh, dance education and arts education to me. What that committee eventually created was a program called the Turnaround Arts Initiative. And what we did was we identified initially 18 or 20 schools around the country. There were failing schools. And we had this hypothesis that if we could infuse the arts into those schools, we could turn those schools around. That it would increase the attendance, it would decrease the truancy. Uh, kids may come to school for the arts and then discover they could do math and science and, and read, et cetera. And it was an amazing success. We deployed um, artists into those schools, whether it was Yo-Yo Ma or um, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, or I mean really big name uh, artists, Viola Davis, et cetera, were deployed into these schools. And so we found that it, it really did work. It was a two-year, two-and-a-half-year test program. My friend, Booz Allen, did the analytics to make sure we had real data because you can say, oh, yeah, it seems like it makes sense that if you put arts in the school, it will make an impact. But we wanted to have quantitative data. And we, the results were amazing. The turnaround in those schools was amazing. That has now turned into several hundred schools across the country. And that Turnaround Arts Initiative came from that President's Committee of the Arts and Humanities. Wow, that's fantastic. And it's, it's, it's a common thing I'm, I'm noticing with artists is that the foundation of having art in your life, same for me as well, has helped uh, supplement other, other disciplines as well. Exactly. Um, so I want you to kind of go a little bit more into the, the career economy that you were talking about before. Could you explain exactly what that is? The creative economy? Creative economy. Yes, that was one of the subcommittees of the President's Committee in the Arts and mm -hmm. Humanities. I was not on that committee, so I only have a sort of um, surface view of what mm -hmm. they did. But the, the point of the view was, just as I said, the discipline and professionalism mm -hmm. and uh, a, a, attaching myself to audiences and that sort of thing that I learned in dance, 
that then translated into my ability to be a much better consultant, Mm -hmm. says in a creative economy, you can find ways, even though you don't become ultimately the artist as your profession, Mm -hmm. that training in the arts can be very valuable to you in being a lawyer, in being an investment banker, in being a realtor, in being a doctor, et cetera. So that's what we mean by creative economy. Now you have a philosophy um, between partnering between like nonprofits and organizations and businesses and that that partnership is what will move our world forward. Mm-hmm. It, am I characterizing that correctly? Yes. Well, there's, a, that, yeah. there's a book that I wrote now 10 years ago mm-hmm. called Mega Communities. Right. And Mega it talks about how many complex problems in the world, be they local problems or global problems, cannot be solved in a sustainable way so the solution really exists for a long time without recognizing it takes some collaboration between the private sector, the public sector, and the not-for-profit sector. Um, In the book, we talk about Hurricane Katrina Mm -hmm. and how everyone wanted to blame um, FEMA by not fixing that problem. And since that time, we've learned that you need businesses in those areas to be engaged, as well as FEMA, as well as community people as well. So this notion of this tri-sector, three different sectors working together to solve a problem is something that I've applied across all the work I do now, that no problem, whether it's a healthcare issue or whether it's um, uh, sustainability of a neighborhood. We did some work with Bill Clinton in Harlem called the Harlem Small Business Initiative, where we brought Harlem businesses, we brought the government, the local government there, as well as Harlem neighborhood and community organizations together to ensure that as Harlem became more interesting to realtors downtown, they didn't lose the flavor of Harlem. Uh, as so many regentrified communities can lose the flavor of those communities. So this partnership, this this trilateral partnership between those three sectors, I think is a solution for many, many problems in the world. So what specifically, can you give me three different people that have inspired you in your life? Um, The first two, and I know it sounds trite and everybody says it, but my parents, I had amazing parents. My mother and father were really amazing people. Uh, And uh, they were together until my father died after 52 years of marriage. So I was fortunate to grow up in a house with two parents always uh, and four older sisters. Uh, So that family unit has always been important to me and continues to be. But they were my first mentors, clearly. Um, I had the opportunity to become close to Bill Clinton and consider him a mentor as well. Uh, and there's so much that could be learned, and there are various views on Bill Clinton issues he's had, certainly, but the notion of how he attaches himself to people in a way that you feel so special, and most people will say when you meet him, you will feel as though it's just the two of you in the room, that he is looking at you, he's engaged with you, and he's so smart that if you mention your mother has a cold, when he sees you three years later, he'll say, well, how is your mother? Is your mother still fine? He's that type of person, right? So that connecting with people and making people feel valued and valuable is a trait that I've really tried to embody as well. Uh, so if I had to pick three to start with, it would be those three. The fourth would be Nelson Mandela. And mm-hmm. I had the opportunity um, in visiting South Africa once. And once again, it was organized by Bill Clinton uh, that I was able to have tea with uh, President Mandela. And just the, everything you hear about him is true plus. I mean, the, just to be in his presence, you can feel the specialness of that man and what he endured. And so if you have a bad day, you're saying, well, my day is not nearly as bad as the many, many days he went through. So let me just pick myself up and keep moving forward. Absolutely. How did you get into work with Bill Clinton and get that experience to meet him and then Nelson Mandela as well? <laughs> How did that happen? Um, it's interesting because I, um, 
I have friends who worked in many White Houses. I had friends who worked in the Clinton White House as well. And so I got invited to various events and somehow pushed my way to the front and got to shake his hand. And again, as I said, he's the type that remembers people. Mm -hmm. And so he remembered me uh, from those interactions. But the real deal was when September 11th happened in New York City, I was living in New York City. I was actually the managing partner of Booz Allen's New York office. And it just happened at that time, we were having our global partners meeting. So we had 300 partners from around the world that I was hosting in New York when September 11th happened. And so you can imagine the logistics of me now taking care of those people, you know, looking after their safety, et cetera. So we went through that, that madness. Um, and then the New York City partnership was trying to get funds from the federal government to help rebuild downtown New York after September 11th. And they decided to put together a consortium of consulting firms to do the analysis, to divide the analysis up by sector and, and to create this partnership. Since I was the managing partner of Booz Allen's New York office, I was the representative from our firm on this committee. And um, we, as, as I said, divided up in different sectors that we would cover to do the analysis to quantify what would it take to restore uh, downtown Manhattan in the way it had before September 11th happened. We had a series of meetings with all sorts of important people across New York City. And we drew um, straws on who would present at what meeting. And I drew the straw to present at the meeting when Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and Chuck Schumer were, were in the room. Uh, so I go to the, the meeting, and of course, I'm nervous about making this presentation. And people are gathering around, and um, there was this one guy, this black guy, who was standing over in the corner, who I didn't know, hadn't seen before. And in honesty, in this room of 200 people, there may have been five black people, period. So in my usual way, I went over and said hello and shook his hand, introduced myself. We talked for a few minutes. He said that he was new to New York. And I said, well, you know, I can show you around if you wish. I recommend some things. And we exchanged cards. And it's curious, when I pick up somebody's card, I seldom look at the card and memorize their name. I just would put it in my pocket to, to look at it later. And I think he did the same thing. So I, we did the presentation, and then when it came time for questions, uh, the people, the, the media and the audience had a few questions about uh, the work we were doing and a whole lot of questions just to Bill Clinton and about his foundation in Harlem, because he had just moved his foundation into Harlem. And uh, one of the questions they asked was about his domestic policy and the things he's doing in Harlem. He says, well, you should speak to my domestic policy advisor, Clyde Williams. This is the guy I've been talking mm -hmm. to. Didn't know that he was... Clinton's domestic policy advisor and had worked in the Clinton White House as well. Um, so one of the issues that uh, Clinton had to deal with was uh, a bunch of small businesses in Harlem had come to the president and said, we love that you moved up to Harlem. We love the attention it's brought. But guess what? Now competition from downtown is coming up and trying to take over Harlem. We need you to help us. What can you do to help us? And so Bill Clinton wanted to create a program where they would uh, provide uh, strategic services and assistance to small businesses so they could become more competitive in the new environment. They were looking for a consulting firm to do that pro bono. Clyde Williams, who I had met, called me for a lunch and said, we're doing this program, which you, you know, consider working with us in Harlem? I said, yes. I just said, yes, off the bat. Didn't get permission from my other colleagues at Booz Allen. I didn't know if I could really deliver on the promise, but I said yes. And that, that turned into a two-year initiative in Harlem called the Harlem Small Business Initiative. And Bill Clinton was very involved in it. He sat in many meetings with us. Um, and, and we'll talk about, to this day, that being one of the best 
um, social programs that he's been involved in, the most impactful. And I would argue that many businesses in Harlem now that would not have survived are there now because of that program. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Culture Cipher podcast by Heritage Works. This activity is supported in part by the McGregor Fund, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support is provided by the Kresge Foundation and the Fred and Barbara Erb Family Foundation. To learn more about Heritage Works and the work we do in the community, visit heritageworks.org.